Welcome to the Jungian Anthology Podcast, Analytical Psychology Seminars from the C. G. Jung Institute of Chicago. The Archetypal Realities of Everyday Life with Anthony Stevens, MD. This episode is part one of the series, The Archetypal Realities of Everyday Life. It was recorded in 1986. This seminar examines the ways in which the archetypes of the collective unconscious guide, form, and vitalize our daily existence. We can perceive this archetypal influence subjectively in consciousness and objectively in art and literature. As Jung wrote, the impact of an archetype, whether it takes the form of an immediate experience or is expressed through the spoken word, stirs us because it summons up a voice that is stronger than our own. In this seminar, works of art from the prehistoric times up to the present are examined to see how they both express for us and evoke in us the fundamental archetypes of the human experience. Note, we do not have most of the images that were used in this seminar, though we know one of them is Hans Holbein's painting, The Ambassadors, which we will have linked in the description. I think you'll find this episode useful and instructive, even though we don't have copies of the slides he used for this discussion. Anthony Stevens, MD, holds degrees in medicine and psychology from Oxford University and a diploma in psychological medicine from the Royal College of Physicians. A frequent lecturer at the Young Institutes of London and Zurich, he has also given presentations at the Los Angeles and San Francisco Institutes. Dr. Stevens is author of Young, A Very Short Introduction, and Archetypes, A Natural History of the Self. If you would like to listen to the remainder of the series, just visit our website, youngchicago.org, or click on the link in the description of this podcast episode. And now, here's the lecture. The subject, the... Uh archetypal reality of everyday life, I chose to talk about uh, because it seems to me that so many people have an idea that archetypes are esoteric things and that they are confined to things like uh, mandalas and the wise old man and the anima and the animus. Uh, Now, as those are specific archetypes of the textbooks, uh, talk about and Jung discussed at great length in the collective works. In fact, they are just examples of many. And indeed, Jung said there are as many archetypes as there are common situations in life. So the first point I really want to make is that archetypes are not esoteric things at all. They are with us every minute of our lives. And the collective unconscious is imminent in everything we do and think and feel. And there is, in a very profound sense, a blueprint for life which is inscribed in the collective unconscious of our species. And each and every one of us lives that out in the course of his or her personal life cycle. Jung said... Ultimately, every individual life is the same as the life of the species. You see, we 
I think one of the great fallacies of our epoch is that we tend to think of our times, our historical times, our 20th century, as in some extraordinary way unique and unprecedented. Well, it is unique and unprecedented in a few unimportant things, like skyscrapers and television sets, and you might add the atom bomb and so on. But in all essentials, we are the same creatures as we've always been. We know that Homo sapiens has been around for about 500,000 years, and we certainly know that Cro-Magnon people have been around for between 50 and 70,000 years, which is us. So, in fact, we haven't evolved. We still have the same brains and the same psychic archetypal structure as Paleolithic men and women. So when we think about archetypes, we really have to take that immensely wide, almost eternal vision of our species and see that all the crucial facts of human life, being born, being mothered, exploring the environment, acquiring language, playing in the peer group, approaching puberty, passing through puberty into adolescence, being initiated, uh, reaching the point where one adopts an important role in the economy of the tribe or of the community. Mating, child rearing, passing on into maturity, advanced maturity and old age. These crucial experiences which we all share have been the lot of all human beings ever since our species began. So that the crucial experiences of life are really fundamentally the same. All that we do is, each and every one of us, work out our own set of variations on these basic archetypal themes. Now, these are all points which I make in my book, Archetypes, and there I tend to look at it very much from the point of view of patterns of behavior, uh, simply because I was very much at pains to draw the great similarities which there are between uh, Jung's theory of the collective unconscious and archetypes of the collective unconscious and other people like the ethologists, like Conrad Lorenz and people like Noam Chomsky in linguistics and people like Robin Fox and, and Lionel Tiger uh, in anthropology who are all using essentially the same sort of concepts that we are using in Jungian psychology but they never give any credit to Jung for it, although he was really first on the scene. They all think of him as a, a weird kind of mystic who didn't really have anything of any scientific importance to, to say. And the point that I'm very much at pains to make in that book is that really he anticipated the lot of them, and that they are really making use of a, a fundamentally Jungian idea in all their work. And that Jung's ideas in many ways went a great deal deeper than the hypotheses that these people are working with. Now, as I say, there I was concerned in archetypes very much with patterns of behavior. But archetypes, of course, um, manifest themselves in images and ideas and emotions uh, and symbols, which tend to crop up all over the world at different times in history. And that is the subjective level. The objective level is in behavior and speech, but the subjective level is much more at the symbolic level. And 
that too can become objectified in art. And this is why this morning I'm approaching the archetypes of life, the whole life sequence, through art, because this is one way in which our private symbols get objectified by the artist, and so we can all share them. <clears throat> this um, re realization that archetypes are everywhere, the collective unconscious is everywhere, and one's all the time living through uh, archetypal expressions, uh, people often experience something like a, of a shock, rather like Monsieur Jordan in Molière's play Le Bourgeois Gentilhomme, when he discovers that for 40 years he's been speaking prose. And he says, what, when I say, Nicole, bring me my slippers, and where is my nightcap? Am I speaking prose, he says? Well, in fact, he is. And he's also using two symbols of comfort and repose. Now, I'm not saying that there is uh, a nightcap archetype or a slipper archetype. But what I am saying is that there is an archetypal imperative that all human beings share, and they always have shared, to spend between six and eight hours out of each, every 24 asleep. There's also another archetypal imperative that all human beings share, and which they share with all, all mammals, and that is to seek out comfort and warmth and shelter. Now, these symbols, like nightcap and slippers, move us because they touch those archetypes. They, they derive their meaning and their quality because they are related by association, symbolically, with those archetypes. So the first point I really want to make is that the self, the coordinating nucleus of the entire psyche, the whole psychic structure, if you like, is there at birth. And it goes on developing throughout life. Uh, and that is the kind of background to the individuation process. Now, obviously, the more consciously aware we are of that evolution of the self as we pass through the life cycle, the more we are advancing the individuation process. But the individuation process goes on whether we participate in it or not, just as dreams have the greatest significance and importance, whether we remember them, whether we write them down, whether we analyze them, whether we take them to sessions. It's quite clear that we, if we deprive human beings in a laboratory of dream sleep, they go balmy within about three or four days. So we know that dreams are fundamentally important. So these things are going on, and they are maintaining psychic balance and growth, whether we are conscious of the process or not. What happens when we become conscious of it is that we heighten the effect of the symbol on our conscious personality. In other words, we are deliberately participating in the phylogenetic pattern for life. And we are experiencing our evolution, our phylogeny as a species, in our own individual lifetime. I think many people can very often remember when they became aware of the self as a pre-existent in themselves. I'll tell you uh, very briefly how it happened to me when I was about four or five. Uh, I'd been put to bed by my mother and tucked up, and uh, I wasn't sleepy. And I think she must have said something particularly loving to me as she left. And there was sort of a kind of warm glow, a kind of happiness. And then I suddenly realized 
that I was me and that I belonged to me and that I'd always been here and now suddenly I recognized it that my whole personality, my whole mind, my whole being, my, my whole existence had been here all along and now suddenly I had come to realize it. Now it's in this way that the ego suddenly recognizes the self, that pre-existent structure which had been there all along. You see, what one comes up against with behaviorists and academic psychologists is that they are all quite prepared to believe that the life cycle is pre-programmed physiologically and anatomically. They, they quite accept that whatever one does about it consciously, whatever one's personal experience of life is, that one is born as a baby, one grows up during childhood, at puberty certain biochemical changes occur, one goes into maturity, one becomes reproductive, one becomes old, one begins to shrink, one's hair falls out and goes grey, one becomes wrinkled, and one dies. They all accept that that is pre-programmed, but when you put it to them, that the psyche is pre-programmed, that there are certain critical stages of life which are all built in and programmed in the genes and in the genetic structure, that the whole psyche has an existing uh, uh, ongoing uh, life of its own, they find this mad. They find this quite incomprehensible. And yet it is self-evidently true. <clears throat> so really what I'm saying is that the human individual is certainly not a tabula rasa or a blank slate. Our personalities are not the mere result of environmental conditioning any more than our bodies are just the mere result of the food that we eat as children. And what absolutely fascinates me is the way in which the micro-history of the individual is grafted on to the macro-history of the species. You see, what seems to us, this is where the behaviorists got into it, and this is where the academic psychologists have got hold of it. You see, it seems to us as if our own history is the whole story. But in fact, it's only the end result. It, it's, what has happened is that we have a kind of biophysical system with a built-in biological clock. And as the clock ticks away, so this system accepts and incorporates into itself the personal history of each and every one of us. So, really, we have to conceive of the life cycle as a dynamic whole and as an archetypal process. And really what I'm saying is that senescence is a later stage of embryology. There's an 18th century poet called Edward Young who said, our birth is nothing but our death begun. Now, many people in the history of our species have talked about the stages of life. Young, of course, did it. The Egyptians did it. The classical Greeks did it. And Shakespeare did. And I get to share with you, first of all, um, Shakespeare's view of the seven <coughs> stages of life, because many of these disciplines regard it as seven. And I'm going to do it um, in the original uh, first folio text, because this is a nice example, again, of an archetype, or a metaphor for an archetype. 
You see, that one of the things which people have difficulty about grasping uh, in archetypal theory is that an archetype is both universal in that all human beings have it and always have had it, but at the same time, it always finds unique and individual expression. Now, you can say the same, for example, about the English language, that it has universal validity that we can all recognize, which goes right back to Chaucer's time. But each generation tends to modify it. It modifies its spelling, it modifies a number of the phraseologies and inflections and so on, and uh, uh, many of the ways in which the vowels are pronounced. But it remains recognizably English. Equally, as each one of us speaks it, we speak it in a unique and personal way. This is Shakespeare in English at the time of Shakespeare, and I'm going to read it to you uh, in the way that the scholars imagine that Shakespeare in English was spoken at Shakespeare's time. A great friend of mine uh, is a specialist in uh, working out how English was spoken in the past, and she's taught me how to do this speech. And again, you will notice how, how different it is to contemporary English speech, and yet it is in instantly recognizable as English. <clears throat> and it goes, All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances, and own man in his time plays many parts, his acts being seven ages. At first the infant, mewling and puking in the nurse's arms. Then the whining schoolboy with his satchel and shining morning face, creeping like snail unwillingly to school. Then the lover, sighing like furnace, with a woeful ballad made to his mistress' eyebrow. Then a soldier, full of strange oaths and bearded like the pard, jealous in honor, sudden and quick in quarrel, seeking the bubble reputation even in the cannon's mouth. And then the justice, in fair round belly, with good capon lined, with eyes severe and beard of formal cut, full of wise saws and modern instances. And so he plays his part. The sixth day age shifts into the lean and slippered pantaloon, with spectacles on nose and pouch on side, his youthful hose well saved, a world too wide for his shrunk shank, and his big manly voice turning again toward childish treble, pipes and whistles in his sound. Last scene of all that ends this strange, eventful history is second childishness and mere oblivion, sans teeth, sans eyes, sans taste, sans everything. Well, it's a rather gloomy view of the final stage. <coughs> and yet, if one is active and creative in mind, one can triumph over the infirmities of old age. I'm always touched when I come across people in their 80s who write about this, 
and one such is Paul Claudel, who wrote, the French writer, who wrote in his diary on his 80th birthday, he wrote, 80 years old, no eyes left, no ears, no teeth, no legs, no wind, and when all is said and done, how astonishingly well one does without them. <laughs> And I came across a, a letter way back in the early 70s in a, an English paper from a woman who wrote to the editor. And she said, in the course of a conversation with C.G. Yeo in 1951, when he was 76, I asked him if he would give me a message for the elderly people that I was looking after at the time. He said, tell them to live each day as if they'll be here for another hundred years then they will really live to the end. Well, this notion of seven stages uh, also crops up, as I said, in Egypt and Mesopotamia, and you'll find on the walls of tombs the ladder of seven rungs. And this relates not only to the afterlife, but to this life as well. And the same symbolism, of course, occurs in alchemy, in the seven steps that the king and queen ascend to the water bath where they perform their community. So it seems that human beings have always conceived of the life cycle as essentially something predetermined and occurring in stages. And the sort of phrase that you come across in many languages, uh, particularly amongst ordinary folk people, is, it is written, or it's all meant. <clears throat> so that everything that happens to us is very often experienced as somehow intended that it's controlled by an unseen hand operating mysteriously behind the scenes now Jung as you know was terribly aware of this throughout the course of his own life and really the whole of memories, dreams and reflections is about this sense of a deeper self what he called his number two uh, which really was living his life, so that he didn't, he felt almost he didn't live, but he was lived by something profounder and greater and wiser and much more important than his puny ego. Let me just quote one, one bit. It comes in page 48. He says, From the beginning I had a sense of destiny, as though my life was assigned to me by fate, and had to be fulfilled. This gave me an inner security, and though I could never prove it to myself, it proved itself to me. So, you see, each one of us is living out a script, which in a sense is already written, not in ink, but in DNA and it's encoded in the genome of our species. Jung often compared life to a plant which lives on a rhizome, and he brings that on that very, very early in uh, Memories, Dreams, Reflections. He says, we are a psychic process which we do not control, and we only partly direct it. Consequently, we cannot have any final judgment about ourselves or our lives. The story of life begins somewhere at some particular point we happen to remember, and even then it was already highly complex. Life has always seemed to me like a plant 
that lives on its riser. Its true life is invisible, hidden in the riser. The part that appears above ground lasts only a single summer. Then it withers away, an ephemeral apparition. When we think of the unending growth and decay of life and civilizations, we cannot escape the impression of absolute nullity. Yet I have never lost a sense of something that lives and endures underneath the eternal flux. What we see is the blossom which passes. The rhizome remains. In the end, the only events in my life worth telling are those when the imperishable world erupted into this transitory one. In other words, when the archetypal world broke through into the here and now. Those were the moments which he cherished most in his life. What page was that? That comes on page four, right at the outset. Well, let's just look at what I think we can sketch out as the inborn archetypal program for life. <clears throat> Can you see all right? Perhaps if we took out that center light, you'd see a bit better. It doesn't pull out the center Doesn't it? Oh, right. <laughs> um, this is a pretty crude plan, but I think these are the crucial instructions which are encoded in the collective unconscious for the life cycle. And, and you see, each of these things comes in, is, is sequentially triggered as the life cycle unfolds. Uh, I can't see it. You can't see it. Well, I'll, I'll tell you. The first one is bonding. That is the first instruction. Bond to parent, parental figures. The second is conceptualization of the mother and development of consciousness. This becomes fairly obvious in about seven or eight months. Fear of strangers comes in at about the same time, almost immediately after the child has begun to show very definite signs of attachment to mother, uh, he or she begins to show very definite wariness of strangers, and it does seem that these, from the social point of view, are the two profound archetypal systems for life, fear of strangers and attachment to familiars. And this is at the bottom of all the dichotomizing that goes on uh, throughout life, between up the in-group and the out-group. And this is at absolutely at the bottom of all wars, all pog pogroms, terrorist outrages, and so on. This distinction that all human beings make that our group is sacrosanct, but the rest are fair game. Then, locomotion. Exploring, the instruction is explore the environment, get very familiar with it, but use your mother as a secure base. Whenever you go away, keep looking back to make sure she's there. And if you go out of, into the corridor and you turn around, uh, and you can't see her, keep scurrying back to make sure that it's okay. And if you suddenly hear a noise, or you're hurt, or you're in pain, or you're frightened, then go scuffling back to as far as your little limbs will take you. Next, acquisition of language and learning the rules. I think that, I mean, Chomsky has demonstrated that that is there. That the human brain is wired and intimately connected up with the whole speech organs, to acquire the language of the culture into which the child is born. The anthropologists are increasingly coming to the conclusion that children are innately programmed to learn the rules of their 
culture because they acquire these rules as quickly as they acquire the language. Then peer play, which is terribly important, a preparation for adult life, the physical, sexual, social, and economic roles that the child is going to play. And we do know that children who are deprived of peer play are very much at risk, and very often people who come into analysis or who come into uh, psychiatric treatment because of neurotic disturbances are not only people who may have had disturbed relations with their parents, but very often they're people who have been deprived of peers. Next, a very important thing is story, in that all children adore stories, and in all cultures they are told stories, and these two are a wonderful preparation to meet the challenges of life. <clears throat> then puberty initiation. All cultures, it seems, do it for boys. Not so many do it for girls, but quite a number do. And very often vocational and puberty initiation are linked. So that a boy is not only initiated as a man, but he's also initiated as a hunter or a warrior, or as a shame. <clears throat> and then uh, mating, courting, mating, marriage, parenthood. Advanced maturity, when the cultural contribution tends to be made, old age, and the preparation for death, and death itself. All that is built in to the life cycle. Now, that is the inborn archetypal program, but as you can see, each of these stages makes very definite demands of the on the environment. Uh, and so we have now to look at the demands which the archetypal program makes on the environment if this whole story is to unfold. So the first demands that the newborn infant makes are physical, for nourishment, shelter, water, and warmth. If any of these are denied him or her, then the whole story is aborted at that stage. But if those are there in adequate measure, then the next demand is for family, for parents, and for peers. And then space for exploration and psychophysical development, security from enemies and predators, then community and culture to provide language, initiation, status, myth and religion. And myth and religion are terribly important because they provide the values, the codes of behavior, the rules, the explanations, how things began, where we all came from, why our tribe is the most important tribe in the world, why we have a special relationship with the gods, and rituals, the ways in which we relate to the seasons and to the universe and to the gods, and the tradition, which in pre-literate societies is indispensable if the community is to survive. Then, <coughs> economy and defense, which... Uh, for 99.5% of our existence has been hunting, gathering, and warfare. And then, finally, the second family, that is to say the mate and the children, which are then reared. Those, then, are the demands which 
the archetypal program makes on the environment. <clears throat> and then you see what I'm saying is that the self, as it goes through these stages, is itself evolving. So I'm saying that the self aged 60 is different from the, se the self aged 40, or the self aged 15, or the self aged two and a half whether or not we are actively, consciously participating in our individuation. The self grows, whatever we do about it. Jung said a lovely thing. He said, the, the goal of old age is not senility, but wisdom. <clears throat> well, before we get on to looking at the life cycle through the eyes of artists, I'd just like to spend a little time on the typical symbols which human beings have produced of the life cycle. <coughs> and these usually, these symbols usually embody the notion of ascent and descent and the cycle. And perhaps the most satisfactory symbols are those which embody all three, the notion of ascent, descent, and a cycle. <clears throat> but common symbols of ascent, particularly associated with the first half of life, are the staircase, steps, ladder, the ziggurat, you know, the sort of pyramid with steps up it, a tree, pole, or mountain. These are all very common symbols of ascent. Some of them also hear the notion of descent, like the mountain. <clears throat> the common symbols of descent are the hourglass and the river winding its way to the sea. And cyclic symbols and notions of the life cycle are the seasons and the tides and the waxing and waning of the moon. The parabola of a missile is another symbol which Jung sometimes used. You know the paintings and drawings of Escher. Well, this is uh, something that preoccupied him always. And here you see a typical one. You've got the idea of the circle, the cycle. You've got the idea of ascent and descent. And typical Escher, you don't really know whether you're going up or you're coming down, if you look at this. And it's not a very life-enhancing, it's a very left-hemispheric view of what the life cycle is about. Look at these poor creatures marching around and around and around in this endless tramp, rather like prisoners in an exercise yard. There's not very much life in that symbol. It's a very characteristic 20th century symbol. Um, the earlier symbols are far, far richer than that. Um, the, the chance element is something which is very frequently stressed, particularly in the early symbols of the life cycle, the wheel of fortune. <clears throat> Another thing which is often emphasized is the brevity of the life cycle. Uh, the Venerable Bede, the theologian in the, the British theologian of the 8th century, 
was once asked by his king to describe, really, what human life was like. And he said it was really rather like a lark which flies in at one window of a hall in which the king and his thanes are feasting with a fire and flies right through from the darkness has come in through this window, flies right through the hall and right out through the window at the other end. And that for that brief moment, it, that little soul has experienced life, but it has come from an eternity of darkness and goes back to an eternity of darkness. Lobogov, the novelist, had a similar notion. He said, our existence is but a brief crack of light between two eternities of darkness. And uh, on a lighter note, Elsa Maxwell, the society hostess, had much the same idea. She said, life is a party. You join after it's started and you leave before it's finished. <clears throat> Another idea is of fortune is the lottery, that life is a game of cards. Uh, that, that the hand you are dealt represents determinism. But the way you play the hand is to a certain extent up to you. Another image which pays due respect to the chances of life is the journey. Uh, life, if you like, as a one-way street. Another image is of life as a meter rule along which a slide moves. And the ego moves like the slide along this rule from the beginning to the end, measuring off the stages as one goes through it. That was painted by a patient who was very much stuck and fearful of leaving behind childhood and his rather infantile dependence on adults. And he drew that early in his analysis. And it shows his reluctance and his hesitation to embark on life. He wanted to chicken out of the life cycle. Okay, well now let's go and look at some paintings. You see, one of the things which differentiates us from other mammals, there are not many things, eh? we've got much, much more in common than we have things which distinguish us from. Um, but one of the things we have is our awareness of the fact that the time is passing and that we all share the same doom. And this is a terribly interesting painting for all kinds of reasons. I don't know, do any of you know it? Do any of you recognize it? It's painted by Hans Holbein, the younger, who was court painter to King Henry VIII. And we know a great deal about this painting and about the sitters. This man is Jean de Danteville, and he is the French ambassador. And this man is Georges de Selve, who is a great friend of his, and he is the Bishop of Latour in France. We know that the date is 1533, because we know that this man came to London to stay with his friend in April and May of the year 1533. And obviously they both felt that this was a very important occasion. And so they commissioned this portrait. 
and a great deal of thought went into it. I suspect that Holbein participated very actively with them in planning the whole detail of this extraordinary painting. So in one sense, it's a kind of buddy snapshot. That here they were, they're both in their 20s. They look old, but they're in their 20s. And obviously, I, I think they were probably having a ball in London. And uh, this, this was, they thought, right, we've got to have a painting that's going to commemorate this. But it's much more than just a snapshot, because it is a vanitas. Now, the vanitas is a terribly interesting artistic tradition. It celebrates the fact that every moment is precious, and that all of us, even the greatest and richest and most aristocratic and youngest and most uh, privileged, have to confront the same fact that we all do, that they are living on borrowed, borrowed time, that flesh is perishable stuff, and that we are all terribly mortal and vulnerable. Now this painting, when one goes into it, brings all that out. To begin with, we know the exact time and date which is represented, because the date is given on this sundial as April the 11th, and the time is given on this one at 10.30 a.m. So we know it is in the palace of, either the palace of St. James's or at Hampton Court in London, probably the palace of St. James's, both of which still stand, although Hampton Court bad, had a bad fire, you might have read about just recently. But St. James's still stands and is very, very much unchanged since this time. And uh, we know that it is 10.30 on the morning of April the 11th, 1533. Now, their ages are recorded. His age, uh, 25, is recorded on the book under his elbow. And Danteville, the ambassador's age, is recorded on his dagger, and he's 29. Um, this strange object, when you look at it from down here, is a skull. It's a distorted skull, but if you look at it from here, it's unmistakably a skull. And he is wearing a brooch in his cap, and it's a death's head. And this newt has a broken string. So these are all symbols of mortality. And they are sharing with us the knowledge that their days are numbered and that time is going on inexorably. With historical hindsight, we know how much longer they have to go. Danteville had 22 years to go before he died, but Paul-Georges de Selve only had eight years left. Yes. Well, you could be right. Um, uh, I doubt it, uh, with, with all due respect, because uh, although, obviously, uh, the belief 
in life after death was far more current then than it is now. It's quite evident from uh, the literature of that century and the century that came after it that they felt that life on this earth was desperately precious. The whole of Shakespeare is infused with this sense that life and particularly youth is unbearably precious and that you never know when it's going to be taken from you. And there is very much the notion around it, it's also in the metaphysical poets, that although they all subscribe to the notion of uh, eternal life, the feeling that one gets from the literature of the time uh, is that they don't really want to go and confront the Day of Judgment a day earlier than they have to. In other words, I feel that their hold on the life of the present was every bit as strong in some cases because I think much stronger than ours. But you could be right. I mean, that is a point that one has to consider. So, do you see, this painting is an attempt to stop time in its tracks. And I think that that is something that at various stages in our lives we all have a feeling that we want to do. And in a sense, you see, this painting has succeeded. It's almost done because here we are, towards the end of the 20th century, sharing this moment, 11.30 a.m., April the 11th, 10.30 a.m., April the 11th, 1533. And we are remembering this friendship and that association and conjecturing what that whole experience meant for them. Well, let's now begin the odyssey through the life cycle. And or shall we stop? Uh, do you want a little break before we actually, perhaps we should have a little break and then we will really get into the life cycle through the eyes of people. podcast is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it all you like as long as you maintain the attribution to the speaker, but please do not change it or sell it. If you like this episode, tell your friends about us or leave us a review on iTunes. For more information about classes, training programs, videos, audio, this podcast, or to find a Jungian analyst near you, visit our website, www.jungchicago.org.